It's Virtual Reality Week this week! I'll explain later! Oh, I've got some plane coming! Okay, I'm just gonna have to jump off a building, look out! Oh. Ouch! I'll never forget as a child listening on the radio, hearing, you know, or on TV, hearing this company that would come and, and bird control, right, for your house. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could build our buildings to accommodate that? We live in their world too. Why can't we, why can't we engineer that into the building so that there's a place for the birds? Welcome to the next episode of Tree Lady Talks, which is with stuff and uh, you'll have heard me uh, jumping off a building earlier Uh, well that's because Vanessa Keith who is the principal of Studio Tekka um, out of Brooklyn in New York uh, has developed a uh, situation where she has written a book and uh, the company has said to her okay we'll make a virtual reality game out of that I think that's absolutely brilliant I'm not going to talk any more about it I'm going to let her get on with it so let's do it now so welcome to Vanessa Keith. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Vanessa, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. I'm an architect and the principal of Studio Tekka Design. I'm also the founder of a new company called Tekka Mundi that's putting out a game based on my book. Oh. Uh, it's going to be in virtual reality. And I think you said you saw me on Netflix. I so did. We're in the future of. Um, My book is 2100, A Dystopian Utopia, The City After Climate Change. And in the book, we are looking at 14 case studies of cities around the world where we have four degrees of warming and what could we possibly do with that? This is not to say that that's what I expect we'll do. Um, The whole point of my book is that that's entirely dystopian. All of the technologies, techniques, and strategies that we're referencing in the book are things that are based on real research that we could start to deploy and put in place now so that we don't end up in a four-degree world. And trees are, and nature is a huge part of that, which is why I'm really excited to be speaking with you today. Oh, yes. Well, thank you. Likewise. Yes, there is a lot of research. We can do this. It's just that there is a lack of imagination amongst decision makers perhaps some of them without wishing to uh, point fingers and uh, a very entrenched mindset but perhaps you could describe to the listeners what you think things could look like in 2100 at four degrees centigrade all right so so in 2100, hopefully we won't have a four degree world because we'll start doing all of the things that I've yes in my book now. But you know what we're imagining is how we can and how we can not only survive but also thrive in a warmer world. We're going to have to number one, we're going to have to live with water. We're going to have to learn to manage water a lot better than we do. And so we've looked to I think the Dutch, who are amazing at water management. Um, you know they've they're they've they've always been prepared for the thousand year flood whereas over here in the states we've been you know planning for the hundred year flood and that hasn't always worked out for us so um number one living with shifts of water living with shifts of weather um and also what we're trying to reference in the book is completely sustainable world where what we're imagining is city in which we really have um, 
more of a loop than a line, right? So we can look at the way that yeah. the ecosystem works and we can reference that. We can think, okay, so we're the only species on the planet that creates things that don't biodegrade, that creates things that take, you know, thousands or, you know, years to, to go back into the environment and pollute all of those kinds of things we need to stop. So we're also envisioning a world in which we use all of our infrastructure and all of our building facades, all of our roofs as a site to deploy, for example, technology that can absorb, uh, you know, the sun's rays and turn it into energy or wind belts or carbon capture or growing plants, which also do carbon capture. So we're imagining much greener cities. Um, you know, I really like to think about the city as a forest. What if our city yes. like forests? Wouldn't be we be a lot happier? Um, I, you know, I, I mean, I, we know that it has a lot to, that if you live on a tree lined street, you're a happier person. So why can't we give that to everyone? Why can't I have things growing in the middle of my building? Exactly. Or farm in my building. So we're thinking about all sorts of things like that. So I feel like you're right. You know, I say that it's we don't have a crisis of tools or technologies or techniques. We have a crisis of imagination and we also yes. have a crisis of political will. Yes, exactly, because the technology is there to grow things in buildings, on buildings, on the outside of buildings. The technology is there to use fungus, mycorrhizae, fungus, to deal with pollution, to create buildings, to solve many problems. Seaweed as well is becoming increasingly useful in multitude of different ways. We have a really gifted generation of scientists we just need to deploy them into action in a, in a unified way and start talking to each other. But I love your phrase, a city as a forest, or, you know, even the city in a forest. And it does make us feel better. In the program on Netflix, you show the structure of these skyscrapers. I love this almost as being a hybrid. Now, forgive me if I've got this wrong between something that is living and something that is manufactured, sort of bioengineering. Could you describe some of the images on that Netflix series and what you're thinking of? Because sure. I, I love this and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I think I think you're referencing the, the landscaper that we did for Wellington, New Zealand. And so we have a shot of that where you're going up through the center of the building and you're going through waterfalls and you're going through the farming that's happening in the middle of the building. And we're, what we're referencing there, actually the sunlight that's coming there, there was a project that I saw that was actually in my neighborhood in the Lower East Side of New York, where we had, you know, it was a, I cannot remember who did it right now, but it was a, a, a it was called the low line. And so the low line was an experiment with how you can actually bounce natural sunlight deep underground. And so they got sunlight to come into a sub it wasn't subterranean, but it was a windowless space and they had plants growing in there and you could feel the warmth of the sun. And so I thought, well, if we're developing this now in 2019 or whenever it was 2018 then certainly you know 80 years in the future we could imagine that technology being used and one of the things that we talk about in the book is if we go to a four degree world which i really hope we don't we're, we're going to have to figure out how to densify um certain parts of the planet that are safer for inhabitation and that would be places like vancouver uh canada wellington new zealand um, johannesburg south africa moscow um, 
So if we're looking at that and we have to densify, we're going to have to refigure out how we live. Suburban sprawl isn't going to work. So how can I give you how can I give you what people like about the suburbs and not what they hate? So they hate the commute, they hate the isolation and the loneliness. They like the trees, they like the nature. So what if that was inside your building? So that shot that you're referring to from Netflix going up through all of these things, you're seeing the farms which are in the center. There's actually like sort of um, walkways that go over and everything is, is sort of a, a grill so that the sun and the water can get through that central part. And you can go in the, you can step out your door and go into this central space. You can feel the light of the sun, and you could, you know, go go, you know, pick a fruit or, you know, harvest. You could work with your neighbors the same way that we do in New York now on, you know, empty lots where we have, uh, you know, small scale farming, right? So that could take place inside the building, and outside the building, it looks almost like a, it's sort of a almost like a mountain, right? And we these kinds of crags there and we've got things growing and we also have windmills that are on the facade and so we're thinking why one of the things we did is we looked at all the surface area the the, the facades the tops of the buildings and right now all of that is kind of wasted space it takes a lot of room to create renewable energy it takes a ton of space we have big energy needs we have a lot of carbon so why can't that become a useful space that we can do something with Absolutely. So many things came out of that. And um, one of the things that it all links in is our own human health, our own human mental and physical health. So it's been proven, as you alluded to earlier, that we need to be in nature. We actually need it for our gut biome. You know, some brilliant work by Dr. Zach Bush, who's really interested in the wisdom of your microbiome. And to have a healthy microbiome, we need to eat lots of fruit and veg and we need to work the soil. And I really like this idea of having gardens on your doorstep within your huge building, because if people are working together with the soil, they have some perhaps agency over what they're eating. It's more likely, hopefully, to be organic. But also there's that community feeling, because not only do we have a nature crisis and a climate crisis, we have a crisis of loneliness. And is part of your vision that people would be more connected in person as well as virtually through these developments? Absolutely. I, mean, I think one of the things, and I think you've really, you've really, um, you've really touched on the main point of all of this, right? I, I think here's an idea. Think about college, right? everyone, it's four years of your life, everyone romanticizes that, it's four years out of your life that you think about for the rest of your life. Why is that? You're in community, you have a walkable neighborhood, you run into people all of the time. It's easy, you don't have to like make plans and drive you know, two hours in traffic to go see one another. Um, you just, it just sort of happens. Things can happen spontaneously. You might have a really small dorm room, but you have a lot of shared amenities. You have big lawns with gardens you can just sprawl out on. I mean, it's amazing, right? So why can't we build cities that are like that? And the idea behind uh, the Wellington example is that it's a vertical, we say landscaper, right? Because it goes under the, under the ground and also above the earth, but that it would have so much nature packed in that I'm imagining in my mind's eye that I could stand in my apartment and I could look out a window on this side and I could see the in, the gardens, right, that are inside the building in that giant light well. And I could look the other side and I could see birds nesting in the facade. 
and all of the green that's out there. And then I can see beyond that, the sort of follicle bridge, which we have, which goes to the next um, peak in the gorge, right? So we have like this, we've also had to really think about how are we going to add more people in some of these places? We might have to build places that we're not used to building. You know, all of the arable land is going to have to be used for farming. And we're going to have to get more creative about where people live and how we live. And so the idea of really having more shared space and having more community and collective um, experiences, having that connection to nature, being able to live in a city and live in a skyscraper, but still put your feet on the ground, you know, put your feet in the dirt, you know, fall. Yes, exactly. All of those things that, that you're very right that we need to do. And that's really what we lack now in terms of our cities. So on a, uh, a macro scale of it being a large building, it's really echoing how we used to live hundreds and hundreds of years ago in a indigenous tribe where we work together as a community, bringing up children together, having your own private small space, but actually also doing a lot of things communally and working the soil. Whereas we've moved away with that, with the, um, the culture of my home is my castle very much in, in Great Britain here. And uh, this is my space and you might be invited in. <laughs> so what you're talking about is, is really how we used to live hundreds of years ago in, village, in villages, in tribes, living together as a community, eating together, perhaps if you want to go into our small spaces. So in, your, in this vision born out of great difficulty, and let's hope it never happens, might we be happier and healthier? I wonder. I think so. And I think actually there are people who live like that today and we can learn from them. So one of the things that we're working on now is our Brazil case study, right? So we have Sao Paulo in the book. And so we've just completed the Worlding Workshop at MIT, which was sponsored by Unity Technologies and the Open Documentary Lab at MIT. And it was a week long intensive ideation session where we had something like 45 different guests who gave us lectures, who, you know, we had two guests who saw us prepare and, and sort of present to them the ideas. And I'm working on that with Seisham Hawkstorm and Sarah Yawanawa Bergen, who are a couple. Um, he is Skatakoke First Nations and she is Yawanawa uh, from the Shukuvana village in Brazil, which is in the state of Acre. And so one of the things that we've talked about is rewilding our cities, but also re-indigenizing. And re-indigenizing means, you know, connecting with that knowledge of how to live on the earth in harmony with its systems. Indigenous people have done this for, they, they know how to live on this planet for thousands of years. The current, uh, you know, our current, uh, you know, dominant culture does not have that knowledge. And that's why we are going over a cliff currently. Um, so I do think that having, having more, I think that the nuclear family has caused a lot of isolation. Suburbanization has caused a lot of isolation. Um, it takes, it takes a lot to raise a family. It's a, a huge burden on just having two parents to do that. And I think that people have already begun to sort of reimagine re even within um, present day cities. You know, there are a lot of experiments with co-living, um, you know, with, there are a lot of non-traditional families. There are a lot of families where you have the, what do they call it? The, the sort of, they call it the mother-in-law, right? So you have like that little apartment that's 
upstairs and you have, you know, the extended family um, living together and, you know, and being able to help one another. I think that that's really important. And that doesn't have to also, that doesn't only have to be biological family. So, you know, what we're thinking is that we also need, we also need to, to really re-envision a lot of our current social structures and our economy. These are human made and they're part of the destructive forces that are destroying uh, our natural world and ultimately ourselves. The degree of, uh, you know, the amount of the, num the sheer numbers, like we've killed like 70% of the species on this planet in the past 40 years. I mean, is anyone paying attention? I mean, this is horrific. It is horrific. It's absolutely horrific. And I was in a meeting this morning. I'm, I work in construction in arboriculture, and I said the reasons why we had to change the drainage on this site. This is just a teeny weeny example. And um, I said, you've got to keep this tree. And I said, well, we will try. I said, no, you've got to keep this tree. This is serious, you know. And um, there's still a mindset that is lagging behind 20 years, and which is why I believe your messaging is, is so, so important. There's a, a book by Mark Linus, which we referenced, referenced quite a bit in 2100, that's called Six Degrees. There's also an article by Timothy Killeen, I believe, in Conservation Conservation International, and it's about the rainforest and forest services. People talk about forest services. Yes, that's what, right. Right. So when we think about nature, we just, you know, we think linearly, right? So we think, you know, I cut the tree down, I make a piece of furniture, and it's just the nature just sort of replenishes itself over there, right? It's just, do, I don't have to give anything, <clears throat> anything back to that process, right? So there was an example, and I cannot remember which one of these books it was in, but there was an example of catastrophic flooding in China on the Yellow River. And <clears throat> the reason that the flooding was made more catastrophic and they had landslides is that there had been intensive logging and they cut the trees down and the tree roots were no longer holding the soil. And so after that, the Chinese government paid the logging companies to plant back the trees. Why? Because the trees were worth billions of dollars for their ecosystem services of holding the soil was worth more than cutting it down and turning it into a piece of furniture to sell. Right? Yes, so it's great. It's so exciting that these things are so measurable now, ecosystem services. I think that um, what some of us know in our hearts and our minds you start monetizing and giving metrics to things. It makes it more palatable across the board. We can measure how much surface water runoff is being captured by that forest, how much carbon is being sequestered, which is, which is really exciting and very necessary. So, for example, if you think about the rainforest in Brazil and we're working, you know, we're working now. My students actually at Columbia have their review today, their midterm review, where they're going to present their initial research findings and design ideas for both Sao Paulo and Chacuvena village. And so the rainforest has reached a tipping point where it is no longer, it's no longer a net absorber of carbon. It's actually emitting yeah. carbon and it's in the process of being transformed into a savanna from a rainforest. One of the things that we've learned is that the soil there is incredibly poor. So it's incredibly, it's not suitable for farming. It's mainly clay. So what happens when you cut the trees down to farm is you get 
yields for maybe a few years and then it doesn't yield anymore and so they go cut more down so it's in the process of turning into a desert that forest provides ecosystem services if you want to call it you know i think our present day economy is part of the problem but i'll just speak in that language because it's one that we all understand currently that forest gives services to the bread baskets of north and south america the rainfall that it creates you know, there's the Hadley circulation, you know all of this, right? So this creates rain that allows us to farm in the Midwest of the US. So perhaps we should be compensating Brazil to not cut down the trees because it benefits so many more of us than just in Brazil. Uh, you know, I look at our patterns and I think patterns are so interesting. If we could understand our patterns as human beings, perhaps we could change them. And so one of the things that we do as human beings is we cut the trees down, we make a field, we till the soil, we do, and we call that agriculture. When we did that in North America and we did that in Europe, we called it agriculture. When they do it in Brazil, we say, oh, that's bad, that's so destructive, that's, uh, you know, that's deforestation. But the only difference really is that they've come later to the table and it's at a really critical moment. So if we factored in ecosystem services, then the world could compensate Indonesia, for example, that has rainforests that are being lost, and Brazil, rather than just saying, oh, you shouldn't do that, but then there's no, there's no compensation, there's, you know, a lot of it is even, you know, there are logging companies, there are companies that are large actors that are doing this, and it's a tremendous amount of forest loss every single day, but there are also small subsistence people who are cutting the trees to make coal to sell or things like that that are happening um, that need to be addressed, right? So the, the demand, the reason for this happening that is an economic one needs to be addressed. Absolutely, it really does because if we start looking at one thing in isolation and also we have thought of the world as a series of countries, as separate kingdoms as it were, but actually it's all linked and we're all at different stages. So it, we've got to think about it globally because we already have climate migrants, don't we? People moving because they cannot live because it's too hot and too dry. And um, that's going to increase. People are going to start migrating towards poles. Hence your need for denser living areas. So you heard about the, the crab season in Alaska that just got cancelled, right? Well, the crabs apparently moved. I think they moved into like Russian waters because it was right. better. So things like that are going to be happening. And if we've put infrastructure in the way that prevents that process. So for example, roads are a huge barrier. So in my book, we, we reference things like in Canada, that they have animal bridges, right? Where it's like a huge hill that goes over the highway and it provides a, an, another way to cross. And animals are not stupid. They use it, right? So... Things like that, when we think about our infrastructure, we think about, okay, isn't we should get water power, so we'll make dams everywhere. Well, that causes a problem. If animals can't and fish cannot migrate, they die. And everyone is going to have to be migrating uh, because of changes in the environment. I am really, really hopeful that we will develop and push forward the tools that we need to, you know, to draw down and to reverse this process. But if we don't, here's a doomsday scenario, or perhaps not, maybe be sort of, a, we're already doing a great experiment on the earth by pumping so much carbon into the atmosphere. But here's a question. Do you really think 
that countries that are in parts of the world that are very hot, um, that may have the resources to say, you know what, it's it, this is an untenable situation. We can't, we're not managing to make any kind of international agreement. So we're just going to shoot something up in the atmosphere and hope that it reflects the sun's rays and hope that it it saves us. That might start happening. There is there there are places that have the unilateral ability to do that without asking anyone, and that could also hugely backfire. It could well we put too much. Are we going into you know? Are we shifting into an ice age? Europe should be concerned because if you look across, if you draw a line across the world and you look at where the UK is, for example, with reference to you know where I am in the North and South America, right? North America, Europe. Quite uh, your temperatures are similar to that of, say, New York, you know, a little bit north, but you're located much further up. And the reason that the temperature is livable the way that it is and is not much, much colder is because of a, you know, is, is because of current circulation of currents, right, that are keeping it warmer. That has become unstable. And we've, you know, so one of the things initially when I started this research, it was so interesting because nobody wasn't really on anyone's radar. It was like 2012. Nobody was really thinking about this. Even my editor, the late Michael Sorkin, at one point said to me, you know, I love this, but you know, it's science fiction, right? He's like, this is absolutely not science fiction. That was before Hurricane Sandy, before all of the fires before, and you've just had fires yes. in Europe. Yes, we, we have in where I live. Yeah, not actually the same, but the same region. There's been wildfires this summer because we've had the hottest summer on record. We reached 40 degrees, which I know is doesn't sound very much for people in other parts of the world. But for us, it was really serious because we're not geared up for it. You don't have air conditioning. You don't have central air and all of your. So so that makes a huge difference. And so, you know, we, we look at that and initially we thought, well, you know, we could just re retreat from the coasts and that's going to work. And actually, no, because now we have inland hurricanes, right? So you have, you have water storms that are cause catastrophic flooding in places like Kentucky that are far inland, right? So even the idea that we would just retreat from the coast and avoid the hurricanes is, is not. And if we retreat from the coast and avoid the hurricanes, and if we don't have the floods, then we have the fires. So really, this is something that touches all of us. Yes, it is. You know, I'm, I'm originally, I'm Jamaican, Italian and Chinese, right? So my family in Jamaica lives in a place where, you know, we can't get away, we're surrounded. But sometimes having no options means you have to stay and fight. You know, a lot of the conversation around climate now is so overwhelmingly negative, whereas I look at it, and I think, is this system working? Are you happy? You know, you have no nature, you're stressed out. Yeah. Like, is this, is this worth saving? Or perhaps we can figure out a new way and have an amazing, you know, rebirth of human life on this planet and think about what it means. If something's not working, we can ditch it. We can green our cities. Human beings are so incredibly adaptable. We are. Genius. Look at how we adapted to COVID. Exactly. Even, I mean, we did that overnight, right? We, we did that so well. And it was obviously it was a very worrying time, but there's a joy in some of the things that have come out of that. The innovation, vaccines were developed really, really quickly. The fact that we're now talking together on Zoom—I've yeah. never heard of Zoom. I thought it was an ice lolly, <laughs> you know. And and the fact that we can communicate more with people. And actually, there are a lot of things that aren't working. A lot of people 
are medicated for non-communicable diseases where a good old dose of walking in the woods or getting your hands dirty with your neighbour could actually help you very well indeed in many ways. So could this be the giant reset that we need as a species? But if it is, I'm I'm very sure you're going to agree it needs to be equitable. Absolutely. And that's why one of the things that we're proposing is much like when you go to university, there's not much of a difference in terms of the size of your dorm room. You know, everyone pretty much has the same amount of personal space and a lot more beautiful shared spaces. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, we were referencing Wellington, but you know, we also have farming towers um, and, you know, nature in, that is that is um, attached to buildings in, in our Vancouver case study, right, which I didn't really talk much about, um, you know, on, on Netflix, but that also has farming towers. And that's actually located in an area where, you know, we sort of took the line of the floodplain, right, because it's a little bit, some of it may flood. And so, we have farming towers, we realize that this area that we chose, the the crops would be destroyed by brackish water, right? So, which is devastating for crops. So we thought, okay, so we can look at where that line is and we can make these towers and we can cycle the water to water the plants and we can cycle it through and have fountains and also generate energy from that and create a better living environment. The other thing that we that we looked at in terms of how we would live in the future is, and this is already changing, right? The whole idea of of what do we do with all of that commercial real estate that was just on purpose, just the office downtown and the commute, and that made everyone miserable, right? So thinking about how we can have spaces that are multi-use, multi-purpose, right? So that we don't have the sort of here is the farm and here is the, here's the solar array and here is this, you know, here's the separation, right? The separation is the thing that's making us miserable. Yes. Yes, that's right. And everything's sort of tied it up into neat little boxes. We're not actually designed to be like that. No. Life I, literally needs to be messier and, and more chaotic. designed to be, to be in community. You know, one of yeah. the things that was really beautiful, you know, I've, I've done, this is the second design studio I've done. Um, with Indigenous partners who work with with me and the students. The first one was for the Skadikoke First Nations who are who have a piece of land called, I think I'm going to maybe mispronounce it, Kaskawak, and it's upstate New York. And we did a forest walk, and Hawk, who is the, the chief of the Skadikoke First Nations, Seisham means uh, chief, um, took us on this forest walk, and he said, once you walk the forest with me, you'll never... You'll never see a forest the same way again. And we learned all kinds of amazing things. Like, do you know what a directional tree is? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I would do, but explain it to everybody else. Yeah. So a directional tree is a tree that, that basically that's, that's a signpost. It's pointing somewhere. So if you see a tree, you know, when it's a sapling, they tie it in such a way so that you'll maybe have the tree growing and one branch comes out that's, that's sort of awkwardly placed like, you know, growing, you know, horizontally and then up and it's pointing you somewhere. So I would have just thought, oh, that's a weird tree, right? My uneducated self. Um, then we were walking and there are actually these these stone, these really beautiful stone, um, they're called serpent mounds, right? And there's a male and a female one. The male one is is a thinner sort of 
rock sort of, and it's it's not very high. Like you can walk on the back of the, the female serpent is wider and they have staggered rock piles on either side of this thing. And those rock piles are ancient burial grounds and growing out of the burial grounds, some of them are tall trees. And we were walking with the students and Hawk turned to us and said, the trees are literally our ancestors. And I thought that that was so incredibly beautiful and poetic about the cycle of life and how we are all connected. Um, so, so, so those experiences of getting to work with indigenous folks and learn from them has been incredibly powerful. And what we're hoping to do in the part of, you know, and I should tell you a little bit about 2100 VR, right, the game that we're developing. Um, what we're hoping to do is to create a place, a third place where we can connect and that will be a virtual place where you can go in on your phone, your, your, your tablet, your, you know, laptop or in a virtual reality headset and you can experience this world. So in Johannesburg, we're envisioning that the buildings would become almost like a, you know, like a mountain. And we actually have everything elevated because of the, the, you know, the animal bridges I mentioned before. So we've got areas where the animals go over or the humans go under, the humans are up, the animals are down so that we can have a connected ecosystem. Fragmented ecosystems are really a huge problem, especially with climate change. So the question here was, we need to have more people in this place because of the rest of the world becoming unstable. How can we do that without further decimating the animal populations and the ecosystems that we've already put in peril? And so one of the ideas we had is, can we use our infrastructures? Can we use the exterior of buildings? Can we design our cities to have density and nature? And can we live with animals? And so if you're looking at the buildings, we've incorporated weaver bird nests into the buildings. I'll never forget as a child listening on the radio, hearing, you know, or on TV, hearing this company that would come and, and bird control, right, for your house. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could build our buildings to accommodate that? We live in their world too. Why can't we why can't we engineer that into the building so that there's a place for the birds? Well, I mean, I'm pleased to say that most new buildings now in the UK do have the right sort of bird boxes and bat boxes where appropriate and we're moving in the right direction. But um, we're going to share this image on our website. Ooh. And one of the things that strikes me about it, that because this very large building looks natural, it actually is calming. Whereas the view of traditional skyscrapers can be exciting, it can be um, thrilling, but it's, it's not natural. So it doesn't calm us down. So it creates a different sort of emotional response, as well as a brilliant ecosystem. We, we just need to live in new ecosystems. I went on a trip to Dubai and it was the first travel that I've done since the pandemic. And I was invited to a workshop and as I was landing, I was thinking, and it's it's kind of funny coming from New York because New York doesn't have a great future either, right? We're in the hurricane belt. We've already been hit a bunch of times. We're on the coast. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder, you know, how how much hotter it could get in a place like Dubai. And like, that's, it, it was, I felt sort of sad thinking about it. And then I realized that we're not giving up. People are still doing things in New York and they are in Dubai too. And there's actually, a lot of energy right now going into 
the pivot to sustainable renewable energy. How are we going to do, you know, what are we going to do? A lot of innovation. So I went to this exhibit at this amazing place called the Museum of the Future. And it was really, really phenomenal. The exhibit design was incredible. They had pieces by Marshmallow Laser Feast, um, who are out of the UK, about like the ecosystem of a tree. And it's in the rainforest and you can see the line of the soil and you can see all of the organisms and the mycelium and all of the stuff that's under the soil and how this whole thing is just this beautiful system that's working not only as a tree above and below the ground, but also with all of the plants and insects and everything that are a part of that. And it was just so incredible. They had to, they practically had to drag me out of the place. They were saying the museum's closing, museum's closing. And I was still looking at things because I was so fascinated. So I left that trip feeling really inspired and feeling like, you know what, people all over the world are working on this. And that's what we're hoping to do with the game is to really create a place where people can connect and be inspired because that's what we need. We need to feel like we could walk into this. And this is already in a software where I could put you in a headset and you could just sort of be immersed in this world and think, that's what, and then you think, okay, so now I know what the vision is. How do we set about starting to, to make that shift and make that pivot into something better? And so rather than, than wringing our hands and feeling like it's over because the current system that's not working, that's so terrible is over, which should be a good thing. What we should be doing is thinking about what we're moving towards. So in this game, you're going to be able to be in environments like this. You're going to be able to farm. You're going to be able to scale the buildings and see the birds. You're going to be able to, obviously, in some places like New York, we'll have missions, right? So when will the game be available? We're hoping to have our, you know, fully fledged demo um, probably in March. Um, so, so hopefully March, if not sooner. I mean, it's, it's pretty well underway right now. In New York, what we're imagining is that we would have, again, a lot of greenery. Um, there's a lot of greenery everywhere. We actually have wind belts that you can see back here on the buildings where you see red. Um, we've got what, how we've actually managed to add stories on top of the existing buildings. We've got a mycelium facade, right? So, so people are experimenting with mycelium, bricks, and things like that. And we also have greenery growing on that because we need to figure out how we can incorporate as much nature into our environments as possible for our own mental health. And also for the fact that, that trees and plants do exactly what we need them to do, which is they absorb CO2 and put out oxygen. You know, I just feel so excited. I mean, you are an absolute tonic of optimism. So thank you for that. Oh my goodness. You are so, so welcome. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to, you know, to creating a space where, you know, where people can can come together. One of the things I noticed, uh, you know, I feel like we really need a place to convene. That's that third space, because every time I go Definitely. to a conference, we meet in person and we say, oh, this is so amazing. We have all of these plans. And, uh, you know, and then it falls apart because we all go back to our lives. What if I could just meet you here? I could say, hey, you know, yeah. put your headset on or get on your computer and we can meet here and, and we can talk and we can talk about things that are, are important to us in our communities or we could do an exciting mission, right? The mission in New York is, you know, you have to close the storm surge barriers. A storm is coming. You know, you have to like help the city prepare. If you look above my head, 
Those are actually like emergency disaster packs that have a flotation device so that you can actually, it's, it's, a, it's a, a floating raft that you can then make a temporary shelter out of. And actually uh, on the sides of the bridge are little rescue boats, right? So like if you need, if, if things go south, we can go get one of those packs in one of those ships and we can also batten down the hatches we can close up the buildings we can close up we've got a sponge park right so this is another thing we've done is we've removed all of the wetlands we've removed all of the mangroves that protect our coastlines hmm. what we've done is we've put this back this is along the Gowanus canal which is going to be more like the river and we said well why don't we have some of that spongy stuff let's bring that back and have an a park generating renewable energy and that when the storm comes we've got like a series of those storm barriers like they have in the Netherlands where you you gradually close up so that we can still and then underneath the water we've got tidal turbines that are absorbing the energy from the waves. Oh it's just amazing and I'm so excited there's going to be a game because you think about how do children learn they really learn through playing together and if you're in this immersive environment, I've never done that, by the way. I can't wait to have a go. Oh, my gosh. We'll have to do this. We will learn together, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring forward ideas and collaboration by play. It's fantastic. I think so, and community, because that's one of the things that we need is community. Here's another one. Well, all these images are going to be um, on the Tree Lady Talks website. We're imagining this not just for children, but for people of all ages. And that oh, that's what I mean, really. Adults need to play. We, we stop playing. And if adults can get together and children and just play this game and be part of this experience, we'll really learn. We begin to feel it rather than an abstract idea. It's very powerful. And the other thing we're going to do is, you know, everything that you're seeing is based on research, right? So... We're researching emerging tech and we're actually going to feature emerging tech. I've already started conversations with people. Um, we, we're talking with, uh, you know, I, I probably shouldn't go into too much detail, but we're talking with different companies that make really wonderful products that absorb CO2, that generate renewable energy, that do all of the things that we're talking about in the book. And the, the things we're showing you in the book are things where we're combining different technologies into one but those things are all related to research that we found well we can actually feature some of these things so that you can interact with them and you can understand how they work and so that could be part of the learning as well so there's going to be lots of different things that you can do in this world it could be that we just want to get together and be you know be in a space together it could be that you know, we want to farm or we want to play or we want to scale the inside of that like tower that, you know, I was describing earlier in Wellington, um, or we want to close the storm surge barriers and, and you know, fight off a drone attack from the bad guys in New York. I mean, there's going to be lots of different things that you can do. And then we're also going to connect that with climate quests in the real life, in the real world. So for example, you know, maybe we can get a, a group of people who are working together in game or outside of the game to go and do, you know, I guess service projects like my family has, uh, you know, has been doing for the past 20 years in Jamaica. We have a house in a place called Yalas and we've been bringing students from the US who stay for six weeks and work with local communities. So they work with community organizations, they work with local schools, they work with the Rural Agricultural Development Authority, they'll work with a cooperative of women who are making honey. How do they get the honey to the market? Things like that. Or we could 
work with the Yawanawa, figuring out how do we deal with the kind of catastrophic flooding that they've had. They need to rebuild some of the buildings. They, they have an issue with, uh, for example, potable water when it floods, it floods the wells. When it's flooded, it's dangerous to travel on the river and the river is the only you know, only form of transportation because you don't know if there are logs or things floating under there. When there's drought, it's difficult to travel also because you have to stop and walk your boat through the mud, right? So, uh, you know, when it floods, there's no food because the food is the fish, right? So there are, are all kinds of things that people at the front lines of, of climate are dealing with. Um, you know, even though this is in a protected area, they regularly see uh, you know, logging trucks, you know, leaving with lots and lots of trees. So, you know, um, the biodiversity of the forest is incredibly important. The forest has given us all of our medicine. Um, when we talk about reconnecting, I think some of it is also reconnecting with maybe those things that we thought, oh, you know, that's kind of silly grandmother stuff, but like, you know, your, your, your grandmother who would know to like go cut some lemongrass in the garden and make tea, you know, those types of things. That's having an understanding and a connection to the natural world. And that doesn't mean giving up technology. It means reworking our technology so that it's a loop and not a line and that it's in balance with the rest of the systems of our planet. Finally, Vanessa, what's your dream scenario? My dream scenario. I guess my dream scenario is that we say, this is an opportunity and we take the next eight years. This is the only thing that matters. And the reason I say that is because if we don't achieve this, nothing else that we dream of is possible. So this, if, if all, if every person on the planet, because one of the things that I, I think is so exciting about being alive now and such a responsibility is that each and every one of us, however big, however small, however little of, a, of, of an impact we think we make or we don't think we really count or we can't do anything, by virtue of being alive now, you are important because you have a role to play. We are the last generation of, of humans that will have this choice about the future. Everyone else going down the pike is going to be you know, blessing us or cursing us for what we did now in the next eight to 10 years. And so my dream is that we take this and we say, this is an opportunity. Let's remake the world. Let's re-envision everything. My dream would be that we, we push forward into retrofitting what we already have, rethinking everything. And I really firmly believe that we can solve this. I feel like a lot of the the despair and you know and and hopelessness is maybe either a distraction or a bit of a cop out you know yeah yeah actually it's 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 lazy because we have the solutions Vanessa I am so inspired <laughs> thank you so much keep spreading the message out there oh my goodness we'll um thank you so much for your time i really well, appreciate super, it super welcome and thank you for for having me on your show this is such such an honor and i've watched the other episodes and i think you're just fantastic so the, oh that's very my kind. absolute joy thank you fascinating interview more information can be found out about the virtual reality cities 
on studioteca.com. When I'm out on a walk. I like that idea. With my tree lady talk. You know, VR goggles walking through a city. I can tell you. I've got to buy it. It's called 2100 and it's out March 2023. Now, though, we're going to talk about the biggest ply scraper in the world. You want to hear about it? You do. Here's Christian. Hello, Christian. Hello. Um, so nice of you to join us. So, Christian, you're from Schmidt Hammer and Lassen Practice in Denmark. That's correct. And you're working on a really special project. Tell us about your um, design of the world's tallest wooden skyscraper. We uh, got notice of this uh, international competition that was launched, and we actually came into the awareness of this competition competition rather late, especially also like seeing how many teams that try sort of to get through the eye of the needle. Uh, obviously, the fact that this were in fact like the world's potentially tallest uh, timber building and residential was something that was really appealing and intriguing to us. So we um, we put together a team, us together with a local office um, uh, from uh, from um, Lucerne. Uh, and and apply for the competition. We do have quite a lot of experience already working with timber as load-bearing construction, as well as we also did a few tall buildings. Obviously, coming from Scandinavia, it's rather limited how many tall buildings we've done, but we have done a few, and and we made it through uh, and got to the to the competition. We're one team uh, amongst uh, seven others, and uh, we prevailed and won the competition. Was uh, told. Uh, at the um, uh, at the end of uh, 2021, that we won, I've been working on it for the last uh, six months. Fantastic, and it's called Rocket and Tiger Lily. Yes, I understand. Yes. And that there's obviously a reason to that name. So, I mean, just to put you into a little bit of context, so the client owns this quite extraordinary, uh, quite extraordinary site, uh, right in the heart of the city of uh, Winterthur. So, Winterthur is, I wouldn't call it a, a suburb at all to Zurich, but it's like a neighboring city. But the two cities are very close. Now, this area of Winterthur used to be uh, an industrial area. So, sort of in the industrial heyday of Europe. In, in the early uh, 20th century, a lot of the trains and uh, locomotives like were built in this area. So you have like this really, really uh, extraordinary area with sort of post-industrial brick architecture, all these beautiful cast iron details. And now it's sort of being transformed again. You could say like it's, we're trying to create like the next era or the next heyday, if you will, from literally being like one of the, the trains that was pulling the, you know, the the industrial revolution of Europe in the last century. Now, obviously, all of this industry has been rendered obsolete, and now they're trying to do something new with the area, mixing all this old heritage architecture by adaptive reuse and transformation, and then adding new structure like this um, this uh, timber tower. So the name Rocket and Tickley is actually the names of old trains. You know that they were building the rocket, as you can hear, was a big one. The Tigerly were like some smaller, uh, some smaller trains, as well as the rest of the buildings in the area, like the Big Boy, for instance, is also like has taken its name from uh, from some of the old trains that used to be produced uh, in in the site. How fascinating! And I'm so heartened to see this building being built out of wood. But what is the technology behind it? Because everything's been built with concrete before and all the problems mm-hmm. um, to the environment that brings. But 
how will this work technically for the lay people? Yes, I mean, there's a, a lot of interesting stuff, both like obviously sort of the sort of the new um, technical moon landings, if you will, they're trying to do here. But actually, I mean, a lot of the technique is really not uh, that old. How this building is in many ways going to differentiate uh, itself a little bit from other timber buildings that's been done so far where most of it has been like uh, cross laminated timber sometimes with a concrete core to stabilize here everything even the load bearing structure all the way through cores included are going to be timber so the way we're doing it is what we call like a tube in tube system so you know for mm -hmm. the lay people imagine like an outer tube like a big box and inside that you put the same height but like a a smaller like an offset of that box so now we have sort of two space frames these are obviously not boxes but are made out of a grid structure and these grids are then sort of connected uh, through the slabs that that connects the two tubes that then becomes the floors inside uh, the units so you sort of get like this grid structure that gets stabilized and becomes stiff by these two uh, tubes connected by the floors in between and then all the joints are put together with there you have a little bit of steel to tighten it as well as we use a little bit only like five ten centimeters of concrete top layer that we cast upon the wooden slabs this is merely done you know to create better sound insulation between the units and also to minimize the height of the of the of the slab structure so you gain a little bit more room height inside uh, the housing knowing that obviously with 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 timber it's it's a it's a lightweight material but it it's also a little bit bigger in dimensions compared to more traditional conventional building materials like steel and concrete so it's really about when you work with timber it's not about a, it's not an either or situation for us it's like trying obviously to optimize what timber can do use as much as it's possible and then use other materials you know where you know the different qualities that they have the different parametrics that are embedded into other materials can come handy in combination with using a, a timber in, in in structures how fascinating that's so well explained and in a way it sounds a bit to me like the cells within a tree trunk yeah in that you've got vertical tubes and you've got radial rays mm -hmm. um the trees are incredibly clever the, the timber is strong yes. um, and and yet the, it is also flexible so there is an inherent strength in some flexibility and it's it's very light you know the yes. strength it can take especially obviously on pressure com com uh, compared to the the way that the material is extremely strong but as you say i mean here obviously it's you know the the, the wood if you will has been uh, manipulated like cut into thin pieces and then layered and layered and layered sort of to get the, the optimal strength of the fiber into sort of a, a sort of a, a very thin uh, glue lamp beam so it's you could I mean what we normally refer to it is a industrial wood so it's a it's it's wood that's been cut down treated and then put back together and do you know what species of trees will be used at this stage no, that, that's not been specified yet. <laughs> I had a look at some pictures and I urge listeners to put into internet Rocket and Tiger Lily because there are some beautiful images on your website and perhaps you could describe what this building will look like from the outside and also the beauty of the rooms on the inside. I mean, obviously, these are only like, you know, renderings sort of depicting what the future might look like. But of course, we put quite a bit of effort in trying to figure out how to if we go with the exterior first sort of how to express 
this idea of working with Simba. So another key point is that the client, again, being uh, Inclinia, Ina Invest, but also important to, to mention here, Wald uh, Gambarini, a local engineering office, as well as the ETH Zurich, the university, the Technical University of Zurich, they spend quite a great deal of well, both uh, time, uh, money and ingenuity, like together before even launching the competition, which is mm -hmm. quite interesting as we see a lot of um, timber projects going out and saying we want to do this and do that. And then after that, they have to deal with the technical issues and legislation. So they've done a lot of that sort of due diligence up front already like did fire tests and stress tests. So they, they actually developed this building system, right? So when we started the competition, each team was actually fed with quite a lot of data and empiric work on how this project should be built. So it's not up to us as architects really to sort of come up with a way of construction system or sort of the engineering part of it that was already sorted by from the client side. It was more up to us now to challenges, if you will. And by challenge, I don't mean like going in and weakening the system, but actually it's like finding a way where, where you could use the system and create something that went from a technical idea to an architectural expression. And the way and we wanted to go was actually we, we talked a lot about trying to create so, sort of a kind of of like honesty, if you will, where sort of the tectonics of the system was expressed in the facade. So sort of rather than trying to hide that this in fact was a structure and the facade is part of the load bearing system on a like most like high rises done in, in concrete or steel where you have like a curtain wall facade and all the structures sort of behind the facade. Here, in fact, the facade is part of the of the system. So, so the whole building is sort of where we sort of celebrate the system and create like this grid structure. And then within the grid, we sort of create like these small changes, for instance, placement of balconies, also a strategy, strategy towards whether the Belgianese balcony sort of should be on the outside or push back more as lodges, uh, whereas the wind load uh, was bigger, we pushed them in, where in the, whereas in the bottom where you have less direct daylight, we, we pulled them out. And then on top of the system, we created this um, unitized facade element that had like, has like these chamfered corners to bring in as much daylight into the apartments, as well as sort of slimming down the dimensions, you know, because it can be relatively bulky to look at you know the dimensions of the wood will be around 90 times 40 centimeters so relatively big beams but by doing that it creates a much more slim profile but still you express sort of the the the, the, the building system and then on the inside which like is kind of a another story is also like and this is you know one of the of the many uh, reasons also to to use wood or use timber in in architecture you know that we i think like all people we 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 talk to sort of everybody likes you know like wood you know in interior obviously from summer houses but also it's a you know it's a tactile material as humans we have like a direct link or relationship to to wood or this grown materials like we it smells good it emits very uh, very few like toxic fumes whereas other materials sort of needs to to stand for a few months to get rid of all that so so far as i was actually trying to explore how much of this wood that we use in construction can we actually leave exposed afterwards even though some of it you know it's not your 
sort of your typical interior wood that's been treated. Now, it might be a little bit raw. Some of the arrows you might need to adapt with other materials, but, but really both because we actually like the look of it, but also it's a way of keeping sort of the CO2 passport, if you will, of the, of the project as low as possible by not having to build up drywalls or paint and these kind of things afterwards and then just leave the material uh, exposed as it is. It looks absolutely beautiful and there's an interior image on your website, mm -hmm. but also it just makes you feel good. There's something yes. in our DNA where we connect with wood and timber because that's how we've survived. Exactly. Um, it's how we evolved. So exactly. one would hope that people would feel calmer and more soothed and more connected with their mm -hmm. environment. Mm -hmm. And then there is a very physical aspect of it being a much healthier building. There As is. you say, you know, there's not so many chemicals being emitted as a building matures. So it's absolutely stunning. And it would be interesting to know if when it's completed and people are living there, almost if there could be a study of people's well-being. No, there, there absolutely will be. Oh, you know, good. The, I mean, the, as you can see, like, you know, the... The, the, the client we are working for, you know, are very uh, keen on actually getting as much data out of this building. Not only have they done, done a lot of investigation up front, but monitoring this building, optimizing it. And obviously also afterwards, collecting more data is going to be crucial. Also, Implenia being one of the biggest uh, general, general contractors in Europe, they are also looking at an organization, you know, taking a shift into another and more sustainable direction and has a huge division that now only works with the uh, Holzbau, so uh, timber, timber works uh, in general. So, of course, uh, this is... Uh, not just an, an investment to sell apartment, but also an investment in, in gaining knowledge about this new material. I mean, this is you know, the, also another interesting aspect of, of building, you know, uh, a building this tall, right? You know, so, so it's never been done before in timber. Everything we do now is in many ways for the first time. So therefore sort of this moon landing reference. However, you know, we are not completely starting from scratch because a lot of the knowledge we gained over the last century from working with other materials and also using or looking upon wood as a potential industrialized material can actually be like taken from other industries and pulled into to timber, which is one of the things that we need to tackle in the future that, you know, we shouldn't like look at. At, at, at like conventional building materials as at sort of the easy, you know, because this is what we've been doing. And obviously we have a lot of knowledge and timber as something that's completely different. So even though it's a new material, we can actually adapt some of the sort of the industrial thinking, which, you know, and, and doing things prefab upside, being efficient, having a very sort of short time on construction side where, you know, all the things that we want to do when we build close the facade quick and all these things like and, and, and unitize systems and, and timber is very good with that. Also looking at the next sort of life from like a full cycle, how we again later on can dismantle the building uh, and use it in other places uh, when if for some reason, that building, this building should sort of cease to exist at some point. Do you have a very approximate idea as if it will take longer to build than a conventional uh, tall building, or will it be quicker? Or, or can you not say at this time? No, I mean, would, uh, let me put it like this, you know, I think it might take a little bit longer, 
but in theory and in time, it would be quicker. Yes. You know, because <laughs> that, you know, and the reason is that is that I, I don't want to be like, let's say, too optimi optimistic. And, you know, we, uh, and this is not, I mean, uh, we, we have that in, uh, in our time frame, but, you know, we do need to like figure like some of the things out as we go. But however, like potentially the system and how you can deal with large unitized modules offsite, you know, which means like, you know, a lot of your construction time can happen elsewhere, you know, in closed environments and then be brought to the site and build relatively fast. So it's not so much, you know, there's two things. One thing is like the entire time it takes to build. And the other one is how much time do you spend on the construction side? Absolutely, especially in cities with um, stopping traffic and all the, the logistics of getting to site, costs of labour. So in effect, in the future, let, I, I'm sure this is going to be a massive success and blueprint for how we should do things in the future. You would in effect have giant factories yes. prefabricating the panels yes. and then they would go to site and put it up relatively quickly compared to say two or three I work in London on construction sites it's my daily job um, compared to two or three years of disruption for local residents for the transport system yes so that in itself is a carbon saving in that you haven't got the traffic movements irrespective of the material gains that you have so Christian thank you so much for explaining about how the building will be built and what it will look like but how will it fit into the, the cityscape? What would it look like on the outside? And how would people move around it? And what is the context of the um, urban form? That's a very good question. And, and there's a few answers to that. Obviously, uh, it's a high rise, but it does sit with, and that's why we have like the Tigalis. And this, there's actually a sort of a, <laughs> a fun little, almost like an anecdote to that. So when, when, when the competition, the name of the competition was actually called Rocket and Tigali, you know, without the S, right? So when we started, there was already a master plan done, done by local architects uh, who also participated, participated in the design competition, actually. But they did a master plan for the entire area where you also have, as I said, a lot of other buildings already getting built or already are built. This is kind of the, the, the final and the most important plot because it connects like different urban spaces within the area as well as it sits adjacent to some of these uh, gigantic old uh, train assembly halls I talked about before that are now getting transformed into market halls, hotel, leisure, these kind of things. So the original master plan sort of depicted a, like a, a perimeter block, like a donut with a tower embedded into it. And after sort of looking at it many times, we came up with this idea of actually splitting up the, 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 the podium tower into smaller Bits. And this is why we changed the name for our competition proposal from Rocket Antigali to Rocket Antigalis. You know, and so almost like get this, it sounds a bit like a Motown band, like Rocket and the Tigalis or something like yeah. that. But the idea was more than uh, just creating like four individual buildings that still stand sort of in a tightly coiled choreographed sort of collation that creates a center courtyard, was also to create buildings that could kind of get get sort of its own entrance sort of a rights on it on its own if you will so it's going to be like a, a little hotel affordable housing youth housing that creates sort of this uh, this little um, courtyard in the center but has a sort of a certain porosity where you can move through the courtyard through these small gaps between the buildings and thereby sort of make 
connection between the different urban spaces that lies around the area. So this becomes sort of a, a, a catalyst or mediator of, for, for city life, if you will, as we were just as interested in not just the buildings, but just as much in sort of the life that we could create uh, between the buildings, if you will. It's so important. So um, some of the legacy of the brutalist architecture in some of the London housing mm-hmm. estates, whereby um, people, there's no permeability mm-hmm. within the exactly. estate. And, and people are sort of on balconies at different levels with walkways. And, and it, it can really affect, um, you know, it, it's good to think about how people can mix from all those different groups. Yes, and it creates also like a sense of uh, individualism that we, we, we didn't want to end up sort of with like, you know, the rocket obviously being the tall building, the let's say most important building, and then just like a, a perimeter ring where you didn't see where the housing stopped and the hotel began and these kind of things, but creating like, you know, each unit like with its own facade expression, its own like name on the door, like this is my house, this is my neighbors, this is my neighborhood, this is my city and sort of trying to to cut it down into smaller pieces rather than just having just the rocket and then the rest, right? How each of the buildings sort of gets its own identity. Uh, and I think that's also creates like a stronger sense of belonging and sense of neighborhood. And the visuals really show a lot of tree planting, a lot of urban greening around yeah, it. Yes, so yes. obviously many, many trees will be planted. Absolutely. That's fantastic. And do you think this is a future? Well, I think definitely it's the part of the future. You know, uh, you know, we need, of, of course, as I said, like to look at each project uh, individually, uh, what we're going to do right now. We also see a lot of work in transformation, adaptive reuse, where we also, I mean, in f- a few projects, maybe we can talk about that in the future where we actually use uh, the lightness of timber. We just want a, a project in Norway than rather and tearing the building down, which was part of the of the competition, we came to the conclusion that we could actually sort of renovate the existing building and then build six floors of timber construction on top of it, and thereby just creating this new crazy hybrid in the center of the city. And and even though we sort of went out of bounds uh, for the competition brief, uh, we actually won the project. So that's going to be like where we use you know the fact that it's a lightweight building material, so we put that on top. Now we just have to deal with some like legisla- legislation, which, you know, is also one of the things that Timber is obviously looking into with uh, fire requirements, etc. And it's different from country to country, region to region. But uh, luckily in Switzerland and this region, you know, they're quite far ahead. So um, I think it's going to be like a, a benchmark for a lot of other uh, countries in Europe and probably is one of the buildings that's going to push this if not revolution, then at least evolution in the building industry. Fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to us at Tree You're Lady welcome. Talks, Christian. Sure. That was absolutely brilliant. I can't wait to see it go up. And I urge listeners again to check your website. We will put a link on our website and to look at the beauty of this building. And let's hope that it provides a way forward for more sustainable construction that makes people feel good as well. Thank you. Thank you so much.
See, this is a great idea from Christian. I mean, it's so obvious it's going to happen, isn't it? Wooden skyscrapers, why not? Ply scraper. And Vanessa's idea of getting young people involved via what they do naturally, which is looking at screens and gaming and all the rest of it. Um, I think it's a fantastic way of looking at things. And there are some people, quite clearly, who've got some brilliant ideas. Let's hope that they come off and they actually do some good. Two reminders from me before you go. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with your friends and family and you can consider subscribing to the show to make sure you don't miss any episodes. You can find us on our YouTube channel, which is SHA, Sharon Hosegood Associates. Uh, you can get us on Instagram, which is at TreeLadyUK and on the website, TreeLadyTalks.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Thank you.